Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factory, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. Today, I'm very excited to have Ria Wong, who is the founder of the eponymous Ria Wong Consulting. Ria helps nonprofits raise more money, which is something I think we all agree is a good thing. She has raised millions of dollars in private philanthropy and is passionate about building the next generation of fundraising leaders. She has become a leader in the New York nonprofit community and is a frequent educational commentator in the media. She has been recognized with the Smart CEO Bravo Award in 2015 and the New York Nonprofit Media's 40 Under 40 in 2017. Rhea lives in Brooklyn, my hometown, with her husband and the world's most spoiled dog, Stevie Wonder Dog. When she is not raising money for causes she loves, she can be found hosting her podcast, Nonprofit Lowdown, or on stage as a newbie stand-up comedian in downtown Brooklyn. For more information, you could check out RiaWong.com, but we'll have that link later on. Her superpower is teaching people how to and how to love major gift fundraising. So that's her impressive bio. Let's bring Ria on to the show to tell us more. Hey, Ria, how are you Hi. doing? I'm good. Thank you, Boris. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's awesome to have you, honestly. And um, I didn't realize that, um, first of all, hilarious name for the dog, uh, but I didn't realize that you were doing your stand-up comedy in downtown Brooklyn. Um, I'm in Jersey now, but I've got to make my way over. Um, maybe uh, maybe after the show, we could talk about how to see you do the thing. Well, uh, the pandemic has definitely put a damper on the open mics, but I, I like to say I bombed all over downtown Brooklyn and downtown Manhattan. So <laughs> bombing at a dive bar near you. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's made you a uh, better storyteller. I know all my bombing experiences have uh, made me one. So let's talk today about you and the work that you're doing. You heard me read your bio, of course, uh, and it's got some very impressive uh, awards there. Why don't you tell us your story, though? How did you become the expert in nonprofit fundraising that you are? Yeah, well, actually, I it's funny, not um, stand up comedy kind of comes into this, which is that I think a lot of people are really scared of donors and major gift donors. And to that, I say, okay, just do a five minute stand up comedy set. And after that, you're bulletproof. Like, if you can do that, everything else is easy, especially if you bomb, you're bulletproof after that. I think we just got a million dollar idea, which is uh, acting training or stand-up comedy training for fundraisers. Oh yeah, no, I've, I've been on that train. I, I wanna get my uh, my students to do five minute stand-up routines, but I feel like there would be a mass exodus and mutiny and they would all quit. So, um, so how did I start? So I was actually a 25 year old our 26 year old executive director, which, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, that seems like a bad idea to hire a 26 year old. And at the time I was like, yeah, I can figure it out. I'm smart. Well, there's nothing I can't do. And I talk about this all the time, which is that my first day on the job, I did two Google searches. Search one was, what does an executive director do? And the second was, uh, how to fundraise. So to say I was a an amateur is uh, generous. It would be a generous term. So over the course of 12 years, I, when I started the budget was something around $250,000 a year. By the time I left 12 and a half years later, our budget was up to $3 million a year in private philanthropic funds. So 
I figured it out, um, but it took me 12 years to do it. And so when I started my consulting practice, actually initially I wasn't doing major gift fundraising training. I was doing a lot of a little of this, a little of that. And then I thought like, what what's a thing that I really am good at and actually enjoy? And it, it turned out to be major gift fundraising. So what I do is I run what I call the fundraising accelerator a couple of times a year where mostly executive directors and some development directors enroll for an eight-week boot camp around how to be a major gift fundraiser. So I'll pause there. That's that's my story, but I, I don't know if you want me to elaborate. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we're going to elaborate as we talk. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, first of all, an accelerator sounds pretty great. Um, I'm sure we'll be able to find information about that um, on your site, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, I also really... I mean, I, I love the approach and I love that you were able to learn on your feet, but now I think it's great that you're helping other people not have to make all those mistakes for 12 years yeah. to get to where you are. So yeah. let's dive in and let's pull out some of that knowledge that you've accumulated, not just in those 12 years, but ever since as a consultant and everything you've been doing. From a donor perspective, from a fundraiser, I should say, perspective, and specifically, I guess, in the scope of major gifts, which is what um, what you're specializing in, what's going on in the nonprofit world today? Yeah. So actually, you, you cited a statistic, which I thought was interesting, which is that overall, philanthropic giver, like the smaller dollar donors are going down at the same time that major gifts are going up. And so um, I just pulled a couple of uh, data points from 2021. And, you know, when we look at it, 69% of all philanthropic gifts given nationally are given from individuals, which accounts for uh, $75 billion with a B dollars, right? So obviously, <laughs> there's a lot there. I think the challenge that we have is that we... Um, especially for the smaller nonprofits, there seems to just be like this desperation of like, we just need to get any money in the door, right? So we do a little bit of everything, but don't really make uh, a lot of progress on any one thing. So it's like we have our year-end appeal and maybe we do like we're doing an online giving campaign and maybe we're doing a social media campaign and maybe we're also doing grants. And I think all of those things are important things to do. I tend to be pretty pragmatic what is the biggest bang for my buck from an ROI perspective? And so what's historically true is that 80% of your budget will be provided by 20% of your donors. So I think, and again, some people may disagree with me on this, but it seems to me from an efficiency standpoint, that if you could just focus on that 20% that's giving 80% of the dollars, that's a really good foundation around which to build a fundraising program for sustainability into the future. Um, a couple other statistics I just want to cite to you. The largest growing wealth demographic in the world is actually what they call high net worth individuals. So that's 30 million in assets and above. And I think that grew like 30% just last year alone. And it's also cited that there are 53.1 million millionaires in the world. So like statistically speaking, especially since we live in the US, which is the second wealthiest country after Switzerland, P.S. Just in case you didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Statistically, you probably know millionaires and you just don't know it yet. So I just think there's so much opportunity out there. There's such incredible wealth out there. And I think 
really major gift fundraising starts with first recognizing that like there's a lot out, out there like there's a world of abundance we just have to be ready to go look for it so um i'm gonna just push back slightly or actually give the flip side of of, of that argument which is yes um I, I know the Pareto principle, 80-20, and the majority of funding often for nonprofits comes from 20% of their donors. Maybe it is 80%, maybe it's higher for some organizations. Mm -hmm. um, isn't that a little bit of a precarious situation to be in though? Because if let's say that comes from a certain, I don't know, 15 people and three of them drop out in a given year, that's a huge portion of your budget mm -hmm. that might go away. Um, what do you say to people who don't want to be overly dependent on these major gift donors? Yeah. So I, so a couple of things I would say, I'm not saying to focus on just those major gift donors, but I am saying have a strategy for those major gift donors, right? So as an organization, your goal should always be towards diversification and, and bringing more people up into that major gift category. So to your point that you're not depending on those three people or those 10 people, right? And so, but I think the base of building that momentum really has to come from a small group that are, are like passionate about your cause and then you grow out from there. So I'm not saying you stay small, but you start with something that you can wrap your arms around. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And, and now I'll, I'll play devil's advocate to myself and, and, and support your argument too, because yes, um, you definitely want to diversify. And uh, we talk a lot uh, on this show about how to attract more people to your cause. Um, but there's also the idea that if you could get some major donors, for example, to sponsor some of your overhead so that you could say that all donations Mm -hmm. go to uh, your programs. That's a that's a big selling point. And hopefully the types of strategies that you teach, we're going to be able to pick up more um, of the major gift high high wealth individuals mm -hmm. so that we're not dependent on as few as we might be currently. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly right. Which like the name of the game is always about how do we continue to bring people into our community, bring people into our list of supporters and continue. And I think this is where as a nonprofit sector, we're notoriously, notoriously bad is steward them so that they continue giving year after year. Now, that's not to say that someone's going to give to you forever and ever. Right. Like circumstances change, people change their minds, right? So even if you have the best stewardship in the world, you're not gonna necessarily get to 100%. But I can't remember exactly. As a, I think across the sector, our donor retention rates are 45%. Like that's a terrible statistic. And so if we could actually spend more of our time focused on stewardship, we could actually spend less of our time having to constantly attract new donors because we could count on the ones that we have, you know, as, as we say, and, and, you know, in business, it's cheaper to uh, make money off of a client you already have than to get a new client. Absolutely. Retention is cheaper than, than acquisition. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Um, so let's back up for just a second. Um, we're talking about major gifts and mm -hmm. I realize this might mean something different for, for different organizations, but can we define what a major gift is? Yeah. So again, it, it depends. Um, and maybe there's some like metric out there that I'm not aware of, but I think it depends on whatever you consider to be a major gift. So generally speaking, rule of thumb, I will advise organizations to look at their, like the span of gifts and then look at like the top end. So uh, of individuals, 
Yeah. So I'm speaking exclusively here about individuals. Like I think foundations are a different thing. Corporate is a different thing. Events are a different thing. Right. So there are different strategies for different types of revenue streams. So let's let's talk about individuals. But so let's look at at your spread and say, oh, it looks like we have, you know, two people who've given ten thousand dollars last year, and then, you know probably a few more have given five, a few more have given one, et cetera, et cetera. So you might decide that, okay, 10 might be our major gift number. How are we going to steward the people that we have on our pipeline to get some number of them up to this $10,000 mark? So it's, it's both an art and a science. I'm not going to say unless, you know, unless someone out there has like a hard and fast strategy, then please let me know. But I think it's more kind of like rule of thumb and what makes sense for your organization. I, obviously, a major gift for a small nonprofit is going to be different than a major gift for like the Met Opera. Like that's, that's apples, apples and oranges. Like we're not even talking about the same thing. Um, the key really is just to have a goal of some sort. I think that's a, a great analogy with the uh, Met Opera versus a small organization, which makes me wonder if maybe there is a number out there and maybe uh, if someone's listening can, can let me know where a major gift might be considered anything over a percentage of your budget, like say over 3% of our budget, well, that's a major gift or over 1%, depending on what the budget is and what your donors are. Yeah, um, if there is, let me know, I'd, I'd be curious about that. Yeah, so, okay, now that we know pretty much what a major gift is and, and we could all figure it out for ourselves based on our budget and how many donors we have and what ranges they're giving in, what is a major gift strategy then? Yeah, well, let me back up to Boris. Like, I actually think what's really interesting to me about major gift strategy and giving is I, I like to call it kind of the jazz of fundraising. Like, I think things like foundation, and again, you know, grain of salt, like I know this doesn't apply to all foundations everywhere, but to me, foundation fundraising or even like year end fundraising or corporate sponsorship fundraising or event fundraising, like there's a formula, right? Like we get it. It's like, okay, you like submit the RFP, then the program officer comes for a visit, then you, you know, whatever, then like they get reviewed by a board and then you get it and then you do reports. So it's all very like laid out. I think the reason why people feel nervous about major gift fundraising is they're people. And people are unpredictable and you don't know what they're going to say and everyone wants something different, right? And so I think that's why it's hard uh, to find training around major gift fundraising because a lot of it can be, you know, I know your acting uh, training might come in play here, is improvisational. You're like, I'm just going to like figure out what I think the next best thing is, right? And a lot of it is learned on the job. A lot of it is like wisdom that you learn from having made mistakes, honestly. So that being said, let's talk about a major gift strategy. So once you determine whatever you decide is a major gift, and once you've evaluated your, your pipeline, right? So these are people who've given to you in the past. These are potential prospects. Uh, these are maybe friends of your board members, volunteers. Like there's just like a universe of people out there, right? So you have this big pool. And generally speaking, your best prospects for a major gift are people who have given in the past, right? So what's what's a likely indicator of the future is past behavior. So if they've given you a small gift, they may actually be able to give you a big gift. And, and this is, and I'm just going to like 
give me a little pet peeve issue here. My pet peeve is when people sit around and they say things like, well, why don't we just call Jeff Bezos or Mackenzie Scott or Oprah or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. And it's like, okay, first of all, unless you actually like legitimately know them, that is not a useful suggestion. And also like, why would some random celebrity or wealthy person give you a gift out of nowhere? Like this doesn't have, look, obviously in the case of Mackenzie Scott, yes, she did kind of give gifts out of nowhere. <laughs> I think we'd all agree that that is a very outlier case. So, so what I think you do is once you have this pool of potential people who might be uh, more generous to your organization, then, then I think you do an evaluation and, and you do it against four different metrics. You do it against affinity. So is there some evidence that your cause is the cause of your potential prospect? Like if, they, if it turns out that they're big into the environment and you're an education program, like, I don't know, this may not be their thing, right? Number two, capacity. And again, there are lots of wealth screening tools out there, which like, are kind of creepy, but you can do it sort of a cursory, especially if you're a small nonprofit and can't afford it. Like you can find out a lot of stuff on Google. So some indications of wealth that I would look at are, you know, are they, what is their job? You can find that on LinkedIn. You know, have they made any political contributions? That's public information. Uh, where do they live? You know, that's usually an indication. So if they live in a particularly ritzy zip code, that's an indication. Um, are they pictured at any other fancy galas? Are they listed in other annual reports, right? So like there's data that you can get that you don't have to pay for. So that's capacity. So, you know, if, if you're trying to identify a major gift donor and they fit all three criteria, but they don't actually have money to give, then, then they're not a major gift prospect. Um, number three is relationships. So this goes to the Jeff Bezos thing. Do they have some kind of relationship with your organization or with your board or with your staff? Because if they don't, then it's basically like, well, let's just call Oprah because we're an education organization and we know Oprah loves education. Like people give to people. And then the fourth is recency. And so ideally you're, you're engaging and potentially looking at people who've been in contact with you within some reasonable period of time. I, I, you know, six months is probably a good rule of thumb, even a year. But if like someone once gave you a gift and they didn't hear from you for five years, they're probably not your hottest prospect. So, so you look at all these metrics and again, you can refine these, right? It's not like you have to have everything buttoned up straight away, but you have this list of 20. I like to call it 20 because that feels like a manageable list. And then you do the hard work of actually just like picking up the phone or emailing them and engaging them in a conversation. So if they're not answering your emails or responding to your phone calls or responding to a letter, I like to try, you know, three different times. If after that they're not responsive, then, then they they get dropped down to the B list, right? Because either they're trying to tell me they're not interested or somehow they're like too busy to actually respond, which means that they're probably too busy to even meet me in the first place, right? So it's this constant sort of refreshing of the list. And then at every stage, and I'd like to say, you know, call it weekly, you do a review. Okay, where are we on this top 20? And what do we need to do to move these people forward? And so we think about what kind of opportunities, what kind of cultivation things can we do in order to bring them in closer? Because every move you make is 
should be designed to bring them in closer and to engage them further and to get them more in love with you. It's like, I, it's, I use the dating analogy all the time, right? Yeah. Every date should be moving towards something. Inevitably, maybe a proposal, right? In this case, a solicitation. But it's all always about building a relationship and creating more of a bond um, and being really specific about that. Now, the other thing is, and I think this is why it's tricky, is everyone wants something different, right? Like some people really want to go on all of the dates and get wine and dine and like go to the symphony, right? Other people are like, just send me an email. Tell me what you want. <laughs> so you're going to have to know that um, and you're going to have to ask the question. And so uh, I think the theme of this whole conversation was about curiosity. So the curiosity is find out who your people are. Ask them the question. Ask them how they want to be communicated with. Ask them if they want to be invited to events. Ask them if they want to come to volunteer. Ask them if they want to come see the program. Like you won't know unless you ask the question. And I think so often we're so afraid of screwing it up that we don't even ask the question. So we assume. And Boris, you know what happens when you assume. Yeah. And then, you know, once you've developed the cultivation touch points, I usually like to say about two or three really good touch points before the solicitation, because if you wait too long to ask, then you get into that weird friend zone. No one wants that. Or a very, very long engagement. No one wants that. And then after you ask, then you have a stewardship strategy. And so again, this goes back to the point of making sure that we, we plug that leaky bucket. I'd like to say seven touch points of thank you and gratitude before you even think about asking for the next gift. Because if, if they only hear from you when you want money, they're going to stop answering your phone calls. Um, Will you pause there? I just dumped a whole lot of information on you. Did that, <laughs> did that answer your question? It, it answered my question in spades, and and I didn't want to stop you um, because you were sharing so much uh, great information there. Um, but now let's let's kind of go back and look at it, um, and and maybe break it down a little bit for folks. So first, you were talking about the. Um, the affinity and the reasons why uh, they might give based on relationship capacity and, and affinity and recency. It sounds like a lot of that goes into what we commonly talk about on this show. And I know you talk about a lot as well is the donor avatar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Um, so what are you going to put into that avatar? I, I know when, when I do one, I've got the, the, demographics and psychographics. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for in, in those, Ria, when you're looking for a major gift donor? Yeah, that's such a good question. Actually, and thank you for saying that, because I think as you're looking at your pool of prospective donors, you should actually, that would be a good time to work on your donor avatar. So generally your donor avatar is a person who is either currently donating to you or that you want to donate to you. And you're thinking like, if I had just like 10 or 20 more of these people, I, that would be great, right? So exactly your point, Boris, like you break it down into two different uh, dimensions. The first is demographic. So the things that you can see, they're, you know, married, not married, living in this part, like college graduate, financial uh, status. kids, financial status, like all of the things that you can see externally. Then the psychographics is about the stuff that happens internally. What do they hope for? What do they fear? What do they dream of? What, what is their vision of the world? What do they value? What do they want to leave behind, right? And that's where the affinity really comes and in. And that's where the affinity comes in. 
Um, the way that I recommend people do it is that they they have a hypothesis, right? Just like fill in a sheet, like literally like put a picture of a person. This is Liz. Here's what she, this is how she spends her free time. This is what she, this is where she went to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then pick up the phone, ask to have a conversation. And it's not a conversation about money, but interview your donor. Because I think the other thing that we don't do in the nonprofit world is that we don't make time for market research. Um, you know, I can't visit a freaking website without it asking if I want to take a survey at the end. The answer is no, I don't. Um, but they're asking the question. And so I think we have to be fearless about asking people. Their we have to ask them their, their opinions. We have to ask them what they value. First of all, people like talking about themselves. And secondly, it gives you really important insight into how to sharpen your approach and how to sharpen your marketing to attract your ideal donor. So oftentimes when I'm teaching uh, people how to basically grow their base, I've got a course growing beyond your base. Um, I have them fill out these avatars mm -hmm. and I have this survey basically that I want them to conduct. And that could be online, but of course it is better, especially with high touch point kind of uh, concierge approaches to the major gift donors. It's much better to do it in person. Mm -hmm. And we do, we, we ask, ideally you already have one or two people whom you can go to and talk to them mm -hmm. uh, and ask them these types of questions. They're already fans of yours. They're, they're fans yeah. of your work because they're supporting you. They're going to want to give you some of their time to help you find more people like them, yep. which is exactly what you want to do. And they're going to feel more valued because you're not just asking them for their money. You're asking them for what makes them a person that mm -hmm. cares about these things mm -hmm. and uh, helping build the organization. There's uh, just, so many wonderful things that come out of interviewing somebody and you could structure it as a formal interview or you could just, you know, ask for a conversation. Yeah. That, um, you could just ask questions and really get to know them as a human being. Everybody loves to feel like a human being rather than a checkbook. Yeah. No one wants to feel like a checkbook. Right. And especially now, I think the the strength of our relationships and the ability to connect is more important than it's ever been. I think we all felt really disconnected during the pandemic. And so the, the more you can show that, not just that you understand and care about them as humans, but that you are also a human <laughs> makes, just makes it better. Like I, I say this a lot, when I started fundraising, I didn't know anything about fundraising, but I had a good idea and a good personality. I could talk to anybody, right? I. I Look, obviously, there's some percentage of people in this world who find me obnoxious and like want to roll me down the hill in a barrel. But generally speaking, I get along well with most people. And, and I think that willingness to connect, that willingness to reach out, that willingness to ask questions and engage in conversation goes. Basically, that is major gift fundraising. I, I like here's the big secret, guys. I'm teaching you guys how to have a conversation. That's it. <laughs> That's the secret. And it's an important one. Uh, and it's actually, I know it's difficult for a lot of people. And I think that even for professionals who have been at this for a long time, for a lot of them, they feel like they don't want to bother their, their donors. They don't want to, you know, nag them. They don't want to basically um, give them any reason to feel like they're being annoyed by you. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they'd rather like be hands off until it's time to to interact with them for a very specific reason. And I think that backfires because like you're saying, people want to be treated like humans. They want points of touch points of gratitude. They want to feel like they're in a relationship with you of some sort that is beyond just, oh, it's time for money. Here you go. 
Yeah, it's it's about closing. It's not about closing a gift. It's about opening a relationship. So again, let's let's have a little dating analogy here. But it, by not calling the donor and engaging with them as as a donor they're telling themselves a story and you're telling yourself a story, but these two stories are really different, right? So their story is like, oh, they don't really care about me. They only, they only care about me when it's time to raise money and they want to check. Mm -hmm. The nonprofit's mind is I don't really want to bother them. It, like, I don't want to be annoying, right? But again, unless you ask the question, herein lies the role of curiosity, you won't ever know. It could be that someone is like, look, I find it annoying when you reach out to me every month. Fine, great, thank you for telling me. What would you prefer? Or I think it's great when you reach out to, I love getting your emails. Good to know, right? But be curious, like you don't know, you're just assuming. Absolutely. Um, and <laughs> every time you say, uh, ask good questions, um, you know, when, a couple of years ago when, when my kids were a little younger, every time we would drop them off at school, I would tell them, ask good questions because that is really how you learn. You don't just learn by listening to whatever someone says, you learn by asking good questions and it shows that you're actually interested and, and gets that kind of rapport going. So mm -hmm. I, I love this whole theme about curiosity, being curious about other people. That's one of the things that, uh, is true about me as well. I, I love talking to people because I love learning what makes them tick, what's, what mm -hmm. makes them passionate, what makes their eyes light up. That's my goal at every networking event is to talk to someone and find out what, and ask that one question that's gonna make their eyes light up because now I know you know something about them that's gonna actually help me connect with them in, in some way and help me remember them down the line. Yeah. You know, um, I'll share this with your audience. There's a, a white paper that some group in the UK put out where they analyzed the top 3% of major gift fundraisers. Because I think the field um, is just like, it's not formalized, right? Like you can't go to school necessarily like be a fundraiser. I mean, I think you can now, but like it, it's, it's not really been seen as a legitimate profession for very long. Anyway, they analyzed the top 3% of performers and the ones who really are the top of their field, they call them curious chameleons. So they're curious, but they're also able to adapt the approach and the conversation to the donor. So I think we should all strive to be curious chameleons. I'm going to write that on, on my desktop somewhere and, and say, be a curious chameleon, because it's, it's a great analogy. Um, it's similar to what makes someone a successful salesperson, someone who actually makes you feel like, you know, they care about you and they're not just trying to get something out of you. It's the mm -hmm. same exact thing. It's even better if it's like legit. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I genuinely like people. I, I find people to be interesting and I, I mean, I can find most, for most people, I, I can find something interesting about them. Um, I think it's also important to note that these are skills that anyone can learn just through practice. Uh, I know a lot of people think I'm not a people person or I'm an introvert or, um, you know, I'm too shy. Um, I hear you. <laughs> I, I used to be uh, similarly uh, shy and I still think, I think I'm actually a shy extrovert now. But um, these are all things that you can learn and, and with practice, it becomes much more fluid and easy. So don't get discouraged if you don't think that you are a curious chameleon right now. Um, well, just get out there and talk, right? Yeah, well, here's the thing, Bert. I actually, 
introverts, I think, actually do better because in conversations, it should really be 75% them talking, 25% you talking. So if you can ask good questions, like this, all right, now I'm giving up all my secrets, but literally at a party, all I do when I, I walk in, I don't know anyone, I just ask good questions. And pe people think I'm like the best conversationalist in the room because I just stop talking and I listen to people. And I think it's so rare, especially now we're just like inundated with like everyone tweeting out at, at us. Like how often do we actually have someone who is a good listener? Yeah. Um, so when I was uh, on the dating scene years ago now, um, I actually once or twice got accused of uh, being an interviewer <laughs> on, on dates. And honestly, that was because I was trying to find that thing. I was trying to find what yeah. makes someone more loquacious, what makes them more excited. And uh, the people whom I couldn't find that with, that's where it really started to feel like an interview because I would just keep asking questions and they rarely had anything to ask back. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think that's a great analogy. Uh, Rhea, I want to be uh, sensitive of your time and our listeners' time. So let's kind of wind this up a little bit. I think you've given us a lot of great value. We're going to summarize it all, make it as clear and actionable as you have uh, presented it in, in bullet points for everyone in our show notes, along with links to everything that you've talked about. Uh, are there any tools or resources, books perhaps, that you recommend to people who are interested in delving into this further? Yeah, so I, I'm a big uh, nerd, so I love reading books. And actually, that's the other thing I would say for major gift funders. So interestingly, my husband is a bartender. Uh, he owns a bar, and like he and I find a lot of interesting parallels in our work. He, he reads widely. I read widely because you have to be ready to have a conversation about anything, you know, current events, sports, uh, fashion, art, like you – you don't know what people are going to want to talk about. So it's important to have a wide breadth of knowledge. Um, but the couple of books that I really love, uh, Tribal Leadership, Brave New Work, The Soul of Money, and The Generosity Network. And The Soul of Money, I will fly particularly because I think a lot of the reason people are nervous about major gift fundraising is that they have a lot of stuff about money that they bring to the table. Either like somehow people with money are different, better, worse, like evil. Like, I don't know. We make up a lot of stories about people with money. People with money just have more money than you. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. Right. And so I think we just have to be really aware of the, of the narrative that we bring to the table that stands in the way of us connecting as humans and as individuals. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, if people have been listening so far, and I hope they have, and they've been engaged because you've really helped to see what the problems out there are, what the possible solutions are. And so like every good story, now it's time for that call to action. What do you want our heroes to do to take the next step, whether it's with yeah. you or in their own journeys? Yeah, so definitely check out my website, riawong.com. I think I'll put, the, put it in the show notes. And I have a weekly newsletter where I offer weekly tips and tools and resources. And it's a, it's a good time. Plus, you know, there are cute pictures of my dog. So who doesn't want that in their inbox every week? I, I love pictures of dogs, unfortunately. <laughs> um, that's all I've been sharing lately in my own social media um, <laughs> because everything else, you, you know, you mentioned several topics that people should be prepared to discuss. The one thing that everybody's discussing is the one that I don't want to discuss right now is, is politics. Mm. But uh, dogs are awesome and uh, help. <laughs> dogs are awesome. Better. The, so, the, you know, there's always like people who will argue that cats are better. So, you know, you can't please all the people all the time. 
I don't want to say they're wrong because I don't want to offend them. <laughs> you and me. Don't be afraid to have a point of view. That's the other thing I'll, I'll say too. Don't be afraid to have a point of view. I think sometimes, and I think you'll probably see this in your work that like, we're so afraid to offend that it, our stuff is just boring. Like, I think it's worse to yeah. bore people. Absolutely. No, I teach, you know, you need to have heroes and villains. Um, mm -hmm. Now that villain doesn't have to be a person, but it could be a certain mentality. It could be uh, something that's happening out in the world. You should be able to identify that and you should have a point of view and a point mm -hmm. of view means you prefer one thing over another. You see a future that other people don't necessarily. So no, uh, I do think it's good to have opinions as long as you're not turning off the people that you want to actually engage. Right. Right. Have a personality, I think, is, is more the point. Don't be afraid to be have a personality. Maria, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and sharing all your wisdom around being curious in nonprofit fundraising and especially when it comes to major gifts. I'm excited to share all the show notes and, and everything, all the resources that you've mentioned with the audience. And I hope they will take you up on it, subscribe to your newsletter, follow up with you, maybe connect with you on LinkedIn if you're into that. Absolutely. Yep. Connect and with me on LinkedIn. That's basically where I live. I, I, that's my main social media platform. Perfect. Um, and so thank you, everybody who has listened to us today, who has watched us today. If you like this episode, if you feel like you learned something, I know I did from Ria today, then please, please, please subscribe. Leave, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite platform. And frankly, just share it with others like you, because if you like this show, chances are your fellow fundraisers, your fellow nonprofit communications and marketing folks will like the show too. And they can tell two friends and they can tell two friends. And pretty soon we'll change the world and help more people activate more heroes for their cause. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Morris. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.